Welcome to the ninth episode of the Quarantine Market Podcast, where some academics come together in their self-isolating pajamas to talk about the particular historical moment. We approach the, the matter through certain keywords, and the keyword for today is social distancing. As guest today, we have Will Large. So, Alan, would you like to introduce Will, please? Yes, indeed. Uh, Will, William Large works at University of Gloucestershire. He is a philosopher and is the author of two books, one being a Reader's Guide to Levinas called Totality and Infinity, which is published by Bloomsbury. And also an edition of the Edinburgh Philosophical Guide series to Heidegger, in that case on Being and Time. Will is also the subject of three books himself, Lars Ayer's kind of funny um, cult books, Exodus, or is it Exile? I, I, I've become confused. Dogma and Spurious, uh, which are really a collection of insults that Will, uh, who's the master of, has been issuing over the years. So did I get the name of that book right, Will? I think it is uh, Exodus. Exodus. Okay. Well, hello, Will, and thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure, Alan. And today we want to look at the phenomena and concept of social distancing. But one thing which is important to say from the outset today is that Will is not an established expert in this particular topic uh, rather, he's someone who's going to just kind of riff on this a little bit, and we're going to think in a sort of beginner's way how we might approach the subject of social distancing. Well, I was talking to you just before the recording was starting, and we were talking about the guidelines at the moment in relation to the, uh, the lockdown, as it's called, about social distancing. And I was asking you whether you'd been out in the outside world, and you said, yes, you had. And I was going to the question I was going to ask you is how did you, how did you feel when you were in the outside world? I, I imagine you were we went shopping at your local Tesco's or something. What was your subjective experience of that? It's very very strange. People crossing the road to avoid each other, keeping a distance, heightened sensitivity. If somebody is stepping a little bit too close to me, it, it bothers me now. So I would call it a sort of hyper-awareness and not necessarily in a pleasant way at all. Something very unusual and, and strange, uh, tense. How is it for you? I pretty much agree. I mean, it's a kind of a strange, macabre, maybe macabre is too strong a word, uncanny, using that kind of Freudian, unhomely, unheimlich experience. And also, weirdly, as you were saying, a kind of weird ethical experience, as though you were, you, you know, you were from a kind of almost Levinasian perspective, a kind of hyper-awareness of the other. I mean, one of the strange things I had, a kind of ethical dilemma, is when you're walking down, you know, along a, a pavement or a sidewalk, as our American friends might say, when you're thinking of trying to negotiate that moment about, well, there's somebody walking towards me, how do I keep this kind of two metres apart between us? And then thinking, oh, maybe I'm going to have to actually walk in the middle of the road. And then you think, oh, what if a car's coming? How am I, and am I getting too close? <laughs> Did you feel any of those kind of anxieties? Absolutely, and my social instinct is is to do the opposite of all of those things, to kind of tacitly communicate acceptance, community. Um, so it feels very strange, almost a type of social violence, to, to be actively distancing myself. As a counterpoint to that, and this almost goes against Levinas, is that I th also think that this sense of distance invokes aggression too. 
so I get this feeling like I'm constantly on an airport. And we once wrote that airports are somehow honestly capitalistic because it's not that you are being policed actively from the outside, but people start to be angry at each other just between themselves. So if somebody doesn't walk fast enough or doesn't know how to do the procedure in the security check, so you start to feel these moments of anger too towards other people who don't stay away, who don't know how to act in this new situation all the time. So instead of a Levinasian revelation of the other with responsibility to the other, you also get feelings of hostility, I feel. I think you're right. I mean, it's almost inarticulate, but you sometimes feel that kind of latent aggression and judgment where people you know, are constantly judging other people, whether they're keeping this two meters guidelines or not. I mean, there's a very, um, a very English phenomenon. I don't know if you ever come across it of a uh, kind of tutting. I always thought that somebody might write an interesting book or, or article on the violence of tutting in English cu culture. There's a kind of universal tutting, a silent tutting. Uh, I hear it a lot because I catch the train to work and, uh, you know, one of the things that the English love, or supposedly, although it might be a myth, is queuing. And it, it always kind of produces this kind of universal tutting. And that's what I feel when I go out. Is this, as I think you're absolutely right, as you describe it, as a kind of non-Levinasian moment, this kind of latent aggression. I don't know whether, whether you think this kind of aggression will ever kind of erupt into something more violent. So uh, I used to live in Stockholm for a long time, and I was really in a Deleuzean sense of how assemblages work and so on. I was really interested in one moment, because Stockholm uh, in Sweden is a super organized city. People are very polite. There is nothing going on that's sort of out of the ordinary very often, especially uh, downtown. And one year we had a huge snowstorm. And what happened is that the buses, it was so bad that the buses didn't run for weeks and the snow created a minor chaos in the city that lasted for weeks, at least days. And I was so interested in to see how the social fabric immediately crumbled. So this usually very polite and organized city morphed into this uh, where people started kicking cars, for example, when they didn't stop in the right way uh, because of the snow uh, in a crosswalk and so on. So there is this sense of disruption that reveals sort of how shallow this social pact we have with each other in city life. And I think this brings us back to Levinas as well, which we might discuss a little bit further, because Levinas wasn't a big fan of cities either. Well, the, the other aspect was that of risk, that there's a, a, a sense to just go outside now is to produce risk. And hence, this question is put to us the whole time. Is this a necessary journey that you're taking? Uh, if you're going to the shop, if you just need two or three things, then that's a little bit ethically uh, problematic. If you're going to the park, for instance, maybe there's a problem with that too. If you linger too long, there's this sense of, is there a justification, a sort of cost-benefit analysis uh, that that's an ethical one uh, over whether it's justifiable for anybody to go outside and therefore produce risk? I agree. I mean, when I go outside, some of the things, no, am I allowed to buy this uh, bottle of wine or these uh, can of beer? Is that, is that permissible? Is my shopping uh, valid or not? Um, am I putting people at risk uh, doing doing something that seems superficial and shallow? There was even a kind of meme going around, I think, where people were claiming that the police were going to be looking inside people's shopping to see whether they were buying uh, legitimate or valid goods. Uh, so this, so it's not just in terms of our relations to others, I suppose, about this social distancing, but all this kind of weird kind of call of conscience about how we perceive ourselves. Uh, Will, I, I can't resist to ask you, 
of course, mm -hmm. this kind of approach to ethics sounds rather, in a sense, normative. So you could think about this situation from, of course, from the perspective of utilitarian ethics. So what are you supposed mm -hmm. to do? reduce harm and create the great greatest good. You could look at this from the perspective of deontological ethics. So what are you supposed to do to be a virtuous person, for example? Or then you could look at, look, look at it from a more Levinasian perspective of a post-phenomenological ethics, where something, something is happening that we can't quite articulate or understand in the affective background reverberation of city life, for example. I agree. I mean, I think there are, when you think of it, there are kind of three levels of ethics. There's meta-ethics, which is the discussion of the very meaning or origin of ethics. You know, Levinas begins the uh, totality infinity with the question, is morality an illusion? That would be kind of a meta-ethical question. Then there's normative ethics, which is the examples you give of deontology and utilitarianism. And that's kind of the, I suppose, traditionally the way that ethics is thought about. And then, of course, there is applied ethics, you know, how, how do we apply these kind of normative theories to our everyday lives? Some of the confusion people have about Levinas, of course, is he's not in the slightest bit interested in normative ethics. So for him, unlike traditional analytic philosophy, he's not interested in going from a meta-ethical to a normative position. You know, how do you get, how do you ground your normative theories, your moral judgments into a meta-ethical uh, theory? He's not interested in that in the slightest because he does, as you suggest, come from a phenomenological tradition. And if you were thinking about it, really, I think that I would say there are three levels here that don't perhaps mirror the kind of moral levels I was talking about. There's the empirical account of space, the geometrical account of space. Uh, there's that kind of lived space that somebody like Melo Ponti would be interested in. And also you get when you, you look at Heidegger's analysis of uh, spatiality and being in time. And, the, and then there's the level of space that Levinas is talking about, which I would call a kind of ethical space. And I would say that what's interesting about Levinas is he doesn't think this ethical space is grounded in, uh, in spatiality, in any ontological account of space. It, it marks for Levinas a complete rupture with that kind of spatiality. Maybe if we're going to talk more about Levinas, now that we're sort of just winging it, maybe we should give the Levinas in a nutshell for listeners, even though I know that's deeply problematic, of course. Yeah, Levinas in a nutshell. Well, that, yeah, that is... That is difficult, but I mean, I suppose what at the heart of Levinas's approach is, uh, as you were talking about at the very beginning, I think, about the relation of the self to the other, that I would say that his question is, uh, is the relationship to the other, does it, is it grounded or does it have its basis in my own self-conception? Does the, the demand that the other makes upon me, which for Levinas would be the ethical moment, does that have its source in my own subjectivity? Or does it something that comes from the outside? One of the, one of the difficulties is if you come to Levinas empty-handed, and I'm sure that's true of any philosophical position, Deleuzean or otherwise, if you come into empty-handed, you can be a bit confused about what he's saying. And of course, he doesn't really help you. He just expects you to know all this stuff. So I would say it's really coming out of uh, uh, an in-depth reading of Heidegger, I mean, Levinas was going to write a book about Heidegger before, before Totality Infinity. Uh, and of course, the, the Second World War intervened and when he was in the uh, prison of war camp. And, uh, um, and I see it as a kind of fundamental critique of uh, Heidegger's notion of being with others. Because in Heidegger's account of being with others, even though Heidegger says that the other is, is fundamental to how human beings conceive of themselves. So, uh, you know, that's how Heidegger argues against solipsism. 
he he still thinks of the relation of the cell, the relation that Darzone has to the other as part of Darzone's own project. Now, how do I relate to others? Am I, do I have an authentic relation to others? Do I free them towards their own possibilities, as Heidegger describes? Or do I have an inauthentic relationship to others? Do I seek to dominate them and judge them? Which I think is, a, is fine for normal analysis, but well. Levinas breaks with Heidegger is he doesn't think he thinks the ethical relation to the other isn't part of the self's project and actually breaks with the self's own sense of itself, its own continuity, its own consciousness, its own presence to self. And that kind of analysis even deepened in Levinas's second book, Otherwise and Being. In, in Totality Infinity, probably because he's heavily influenced by Rosenzweig, that the, the way that the other breaks with the self's uh, presence to itself is through speech. In, interestingly, otherwise in being, uh, the paradigm becomes more the body and the metaphor becomes eternity rather than speech. But, uh, but in both cases, the analogy is working in terms of thinking about, is it possible to think about the other as a rupture within uh, the self's world rather than as an element or part of uh, self-consciousness? I mean, I'm aware that's a very peculiar way of explaining Levinas. No, I'm by no means a Levinasian expert, but I've read him just a little bit. So what was interesting to me always was this idea that for him, ethics is the first principle. So for any other form of ethical thinking, there's always something, an ontology, and then you kind of put ethics on top of that. But for Levinas, in his massive denunciation of any structure that would then inform the ethics, because that's already a totality and a sort of fascistic tendency for him. Any rules are fascistic. You have to have ethics first. So first, is your disposition towards the world has to be ethical, and only then can you think of other things. So for Levinas, ethics are about the infinity of the other, and that's why they're also called uh, sometimes very uh, masochistic ethics or utopian ethics, because you can never get there. You can never in practical terms, in the consumer society we live today, you can never put the other fully in front of your own kind of idea of yourself. But that's the goal for Levinas, as far as I understand. So for Levinas, he wants a kind of ethical revelation to happen within you, where you realize that you are guilty. You are you are the lucky one. You have survived in the face of all the injustice in the world. It's a deeply guilty ethics that you have to sort of embody and only then can you start to build a relationship with the world and to the other. So the other becomes infinite and you should respond to the other as an infinitude whose well-being you should sort of put before your own. So this would be for Levinas some a sort of truly ethical disposition. It's utopian, but Levinas is trying to be very careful that he doesn't found it on rules, because rules can always be seeds of oppression. That's a very good uh, analysis and description. I think, and I think you highlight something that's very, very important in Levinas's approach: that uh, ethics, for him, is not to be understood in any kind of normative way. I, like I always remember, because I think you you might suggest at the very beginning that you you um, don't know whether you said you were Deleuzean, but I think you said you were you had read Deleuze, or very influenced by Deleuze. And I always remember in. Deleuze's book on Nietzsche and philosophy, right at the end when he says, he talks about, uh, you know, not destroying moral judgment uh, as the basis of ethics, thinking about ethics in a completely different way. And also that's, of course, at the heart of Deleuze's reading of Spinoza, separating ethics and moral judgment from normativity. 
I mean, obviously, there's great differences between Deleuze and Levinas and Meloponti and Nietzsche, some not Meloponti, uh, Spinoza and Nietzsche. But I think in that crucial point, they're all in agreement. Ethics has nothing to do with morality. I'd like to ask a question to you, Will, about uh, Deleuze, if I may, which is the concept of flow and how important mm. it is to Deleuze and Guattari. Um, and also, this is the moment of incredible disruption to flow as well. Do, do you think this is a useful way to think about the here and now? You're thinking about uh, Antiedipus, aren't you, Alan? I am. Yeah. You know, when somebody asks you a question in a podcast like that, your mind starts going scrambling, thinking, what have I got interesting to say about flows and Deleuze and Guattari at all? I kind of understand it. You know, one thing that when they talk about uh, machines in Antiedipus, I always thought it's very important they say it's like it's not a metaphor, it's not an analogy, it's a, it, it is, they're, they're describing what it is. And what they're interested, I suppose, is how assemblages occur contingently and how those assemblages are created through flows. And if you were thinking about that in terms of our kind of contemporary existence, they're very interesting, of course, in the, the flows, I suppose, between bodies and capital. Because one thing, if you think about capitalism, is that it's a, it's a kind of complete dematerialization of the world. So everything is translated in flows of money, money and capital, and how that connects to flows of the... If you were thinking about, I know this podcast is some sense about the body, how the body is connected into those flows. And one of the interesting things I was thinking about when we were talking about social distancing here was, do you remember uh, one of Deleuze's late essays, I think it might even be one of the last things he wrote, which is called Society of Control. Well, I think what, what he talks about in terms of the city there, doesn't he, when he talks about thinking of the city in terms of flows and barriers. And he was kind of predicting a future already when he was thinking about how with smartphones would be connected to, to barriers. So a smartphone would let you through certain places of the city. So, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, Alan, maybe perhaps you're much more important than person than me, or walking along, uh, somewhere through London, we both have smartphones and we reach some kind of barrier and somehow you're allowed through, but I'm not. And then I was thinking, I heard somewhere, I don't know if you guys heard of it, they were thinking of using the smartphones and smart apps in terms of um, of this uh, virus about controlling populations. And it made me immediately start thinking of uh, society of control. Yes, uh, I know this essay rather well. And uh, you are correct in pointing out that I'm much more of a Deleuzean than I I ever was a Levinasian, even though I've done a little work on that. And of course, the postscript of societies of control essay is sort of remarkable and really over-interpreted because it's a very mm. short essay where he kind of throws out some concepts and some of those concepts have had real staying power, like societies of control and the idea of a city as a universal modulation or something like that, if I remember correctly. And mm. that's also where the idea of the individual comes from. You can elaborate that to present times by saying no longer, for example, on social media, are we individuals, but these algorithms treat us as individuals. They pull us apart and they monetize each little part, each little memory, each little interaction that we do in these global networks. I did my PhD on Deleuze's cinema theory. And uh, my favorite quote from Cinema 2 which I think foreshadows the society postscript for, of societies of control rather nicely. And of course, this translation is already 1989. He says, and I'll quote, and the screen itself, even if it keeps a vertical position by convention, 
no longer seems to refer to the human posture like a window or painting, but rather constitute a table of information, an opaque surface on which are inscribed data. Information replacing nature and the brain city, the third eye, replacing the eye of nature. Okay, uh, so what he's saying there, he's describing what happens when cinema or audiovisual production turns into a digital form. So no longer will we watch a cinema screen, we will now do exactly what we're doing today, watch uh, three or four YouTube channels at the same time while lying on our bed. The interesting moment here, is, and you could read this in a flippant way, in a dark Deleuzean way or in a cyberpunkian way, that he is really he is really describing these kind of flows where the city no longer is a place of solid humans, but just this cosmic place of different kinds of flows of information, flows of capital, flows of desire, and uh, this kind of a very science fiction-y type of imagination of the future. It's a very uh, fascinating and interesting quote. I mean, I was thinking of, I don't know, um, I've suddenly forgotten, which is terrible, the name of the the name of the city, the Chinese city where the the pandemic started. The Wuhan? Well, I heard they have this thing now where on your smartphones to allow you to travel, you have either a green or red image. So if it's green, you're allowed to travel. If it's red, you're not. And I was thinking about kind of, I mean, what you guys are thinking about after the end of this pandemic. What kind of changes do you think will happen in terms of uh, political space? Do you see in the future this will even lead to more integration of technology into uh, controls of populations? Or do you think there'll be some kind of resistance to it? Is the Chinese state the new paradigm? Before we get to that, I think we should maybe discuss a little bit what does social distancing mean in the context if we allow to imagine that we now live in a at least a quasi-brain city, as it was for Deleuze already some decades ago. In this podcast, in the previous episodes, uh, many guests have pointed out that this is actually not social distancing. What we have is physical distancing. And guests have also talked about the idea that it sort of took this disruption for many people to actually realize that when we didn't have the pandemic yet, uh, social distancing was in full force. So this active social distancing, or I should say physical distancing, has created a situation where people have realized how much distancing they were doing in the normal way of things. And some people have now realized that, you know, find more contacts, even when you're physically distanced, you become through these flows, through these opportunities to create these flows of data, of interaction, have become more socially close, perhaps, to their loved ones or family members. So there is this interesting, if you will, a dialectic between that it took this situation to show us how distant we actually are. And in this intensified distance, we may find new opportunities to relate. I think that's a very interesting point. I mean, I think you're absolutely right to point out that it's, it's not really social distancing, it's physical distancing. And I'm very interested in the way, you know, coming back to Deleuze and the postures of linguistics when they talk about order words, just how how order words transform space, physical and social, political space. Just how people's behavior was transform, is transformed by order words. There was a thing in, in this country, we had this kind of weird quasi-secret unit within their 10 Downing Street called the Nudge Unit or whatever they call themselves. About there was some kind of speculation that one of the reasons why uh, 
the lockdown in the UK was late is because they didn't believe that British people would would actually uh, obey the lockdown and there would be social uh, chaos. But in fact, quite the opposite has occurred. Uh, on the whole, generally, uh, people have just simply carried out the, these uh, these orders of uh, physical distancing. And I was very interested in, in how that operated. But also thinking about, I think you're right to say, that we'll also think about how this kind of lockdown leads to other possibilities of interaction. And I, I kind of would be interested in what both of you think about how people now, like we are doing, are now starting to communicate virtually. I mean, I'm a teacher, and now, uh, after this lockdown, all, all my relationship now to teaching and students is all done through uh, Microsoft Teams and Skype and other forms of virtual forms of communication. Yeah, I guess there's a slight conceptual problem with saying that, uh, in terms of flows, that this situation is a disruption. The way I would read Delors and Guattari, especially Anti-Oedipus, would be that it's not a disruption. It's rather something different. It's it's a change or a rechanneling of flows, but the flows have not been disrupted. They just find new avenues and new pathways to flow. These desiring flows, they are exponential and accumulative. So it's only more and more, more and more of desire. It's not a, a psychoanalytic. Now there's a new lack, and desire finds a new way to try to desperately fill that lack. But it's a different idea of these desiring flows altogether, where they just find new pathways and new ways to trickle through different different kind of uh, vectors and they discover new ways of uh, intensifying desire. Well, of course, we've seen all kinds of ways that people now find desiring machines around them, with this podcast being one of them, or these trivial examples. But desire always keeps on flowing and what we might call a disruption, I would like to call some sort of rechanneling, rather. So do you think any kind of absolute disruption or event or revolution or transformation in that sense is is impossible. Just the previous episode we had James Fitchett on and he the, the key word for that episode was dystopia and uh, James coming from a very psychoanalytic approach said quite directly that this is the moment to enjoy even though it's a tragic moment but this is a moment to enjoy because from a psychoanalytic reading, crises are what sort of fuel these desiring opportunities. Of course, I I am one of those notorious dark dealers people, so I don't have that much faith in people actually finding a communion that would change things. I think the power of capitalism may be quite a bit more stronger than that. But if there is something like a revolution or an actual disruption that would lead into noticeable difference, if that would manifest. These are, I guess, the times that we're going to find out. Lynn Siegel, in an episode a little bit before this, said that if there's anything to learn from history, it's likely that things will more or less return to the same. What do you think? I don't know. I think it, what you say is very interesting and makes me think a lot. I mean, I suppose I think that, alluding to your last comment, I'd always say for me, history teaches me exactly the opposite, that history is never the history of the same. It's always the history of difference. Kind of a Foucauldian thing to say. I mean, although events are very rare, they do happen, and events are ruptures within history. And I even I, you could even read Antiedipus and what we were talking about as a description of ruptures within history, or well, as they distinguish between uh, different uh, forms of uh, 
within the historical understanding different forms of assemblage. And and you could say that that that's also the case in Mill Plateau. I don't know. What do you think? I don't disagree with this at all. I guess the real question then becomes, is this an event that eventifies enough? Is this an event with uh, with the kind of desiring and symbolic power to actually create that sort of an eventification? I'm not convinced that this is enough to give me much optimism about how things will really change. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe things will. It could be either or. Maybe only retrospectively. For, we only know the future from the past. But I mean, uh, as it goes, as it passes us by, I suppose what I mean by that is only retrospectively, perhaps, do we know we've gone through an event. And it could go either way. I mean, you could be absolutely right that this is just a, a kind of modulation within financial capital. And what we'll see is an intensification of that. And, no, and nothing new will happen. I, I can entirely agree with that. I don't know. What do you think, Alan? I think... Um... Following the last crash, the changes in regulations have forced the uh, financial institutions to have huge reserves of cash in preparation for moments like this. Yet even then, there was never any uh, anticipation that a crash as big as this would come. Currently, I think there hasn't been a, what's the term they use, the credit crunch in the banking system because they've been able to feed off their large reserves. But the limit to that must be coming very soon. And meanwhile, governments are just hemorrhaging vast amounts of cash as well. So it seems to me that we're probably getting very close to a spectacular financial collapse, uh, something which would be very different, given that there's almost a, a universal international experience of this. And as much as it's not just one country or a handful of countries, that are, 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 are struck by this uh, in particular. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if we're heading towards an almighty crash, which would dwarf what happened in 2008. And to add to that, the warnings of this kind of medical situation or pandemic event, uh, they have these warnings have been present with us. Uh, I, I, I just saw a paper where this was predicted already in 2008. So the warnings have been there all the time that this system that we have currently cannot survive this and it will come. But of course, global financial capital will not respond with such kind of redundancy to these situations because that's not in its logics, right? What I think is really interesting to imagine is back to how we'll experience this at the level of the body, at the social, at the everyday. And which is why, Will, I thought it was very interesting what you were saying to imagine a future where we either will have permission to go where we want to or we won't have it uh, and perhaps with this heightened sense of ethical duty to the people around us a heightened sense of risk a heightened sense of the uncanny as well which might just mutate into something a, a permanent way of of experiencing the world i think so i mean there's two ways you can think about it isn't it from a kind of socialist perspective, you might say, well, one consequence of this, this uh, crisis might be that people will realize how, uh, how dependent they are on uh, social relations. But otherwise, the other opposite extreme might be, as, as a, I think that we've been talking about, is it might just intensif intensify the kind of ways in which capital is captured, uh, subjectivity. Uh, and I always think of, of uh, finance capital as a kind of interiorization of the flows of money in the soul 
And so it might intensify those kind of relations. So I think it go, could go either way. And that's what makes this a very interesting event. And I, thinking about what you were just saying as well, it's, it's not the, the pandemic is a kind of, when you're talking about how this was going to happen for a very long time, but just ignored it. It's how interesting the pandemic is almost, again, using that word dialectical, it's a kind of negative dialectical image of globalization. I mean, in a certain sense that the, the pandemic only happens because of globalization, the flows of travel across the world, that the world has become one, et cetera, et cetera. Thinking about it in that way. And I was also thinking in terms of, Alan, what you were saying about, of course, we have a massive crisis on top of this crisis, a crisis that the scientists are telling us could be six or 12 years away, which is climate change and how climate change itself is connected in some way to this event. I mean, it is astonishing to realize how good news this is in terms of climate change, isn't it? That this is an extraordinary moment of respite that nobody saw coming. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you two have seen some of the, one of the, the kind of weird consequences of this uh, pandemic is the uh, pictures of, uh, of cities around the world where people can actually see the sky because, you know, the drop in the levels of pollution, the collapse of the uh, price of oil, which I don't think is ever going to come back. You know, if you're thinking about the internal, if you're going to, from a kind of Marxist perspective, and thinking about the internal contradiction, the imminent contradictions of capital, you might want to think about this in the, in the kind of the return of nature. You know, as capital interiorizes itself within the body, how the, that this is a kind of uh, uh, return of the repressed. I read a brilliant book recently called Shadow Play by Joseph O'Connor. Uh, one of the moments it dramatizes is uh, Jack the Ripper in East London in the Victorian era, and how in the aftermath of Jack the Ripper's serial killing, there was just this heightened sense of risk and fear in the city centre, that people started to fear strangers a bit more, that alleyways seemed to be a little more menacing than they'd ever been. And the sort of relaxation of, of everyday life was gone and didn't come back and become a permanent part of the city. I wonder will something similar happen? Will we just get this heightened sense of danger, of proximity, of when somebody sneezes, for instance? Will we ever be as relaxed towards somebody who's got a runny nose, for example? I don't think we will for a long time. One of the issues around this pandemic, reading some of the scientific literature, is that most people think it will return. There's two possibilities here, isn't there? Either something does change, and it change the level of people's conceptions of themselves, change the, the level of their social selves, political selves, ethical selves, change the level of desiring machines, and whatever way you wish to think about that, or nothing changes and it just intensifies the same. A final question for me. So I mentioned Levinas and his ideas about city life in the beginning. So. Um, I was reading Anna Herzog's wonderful paper, and there she re uh, recounts quite wonderfully how Levinas reminds me of Rousseau quite a bit, where Levinas says that cities are terrible because they only create situations where people think of, uh, think of themselves. They have no culture, they have no history, they have no community. They only have this eerie and despondent anonymity about them. So Levinas even says that ca uh, cafes are terrible because nobody really meets anybody. You just go there to relax a bit before you go back to your horrible anonymity that doesn't take any responsibility of the other or the kind of community that he would probably like to see. So one word that Herzog uses there is the idea of half guilt. 
So everybody in the city, according to Levinas, is half guilty. So we walk past beggars, we don't really make any contact, we don't really try to help anybody because we are simply embodying the assumed rules. This is how you're supposed to act, this is how you're supposed to walk about, this is how you're supposed to meet people, this is how, how you're supposed to keep your distance. So Levinas doesn't, didn't like cities because we don't really make an ethical relationship with the other. It's just a bastion of anonymity. So half-guilt basically means, for example, that we, we have locks in our houses to keep other people out, but at the same time, by having those locks in the houses, it creates the very situation where we create the imagination that there's other people that we have to keep out. So in terms of social distancing, is there a half-guilt that sort of has become revealed to people now that we also see tremendous new ways of people taking responsibility for others, for example, caring for the elderly who can't go to the stores or are quarantined or so on. Could there be any kind of rupture or revelation in terms of that? There could be, yes. I mean, talking from my own experience, I mean, at my local Tesco's, there's always a beggar who sits outside the local Tesco's who I always try and talk to, uh, because I think one of the terrible things about begging is the kind of sheer dehumanization of it. You know, even if people are giving beggars money or whatever, they very rarely recognize them as other human beings. I, I remember when I was there, I noticed one of, the, one of the days when I went out, there was this, we have a, I don't know, you probably experienced it yourself, but there's a line that snakes outside of the store and they put down markers on the on the pavement, two meter markers, so so people can tell where to stand in this queue, and everybody's standing in this queue. And of course, I noticed that the beggar who normally sits outside the door of Tesco's, he wasn't sitting there, of course, probably being told not to, but he was just standing a bit further distance away. And I just I thought, you know, nobody was speaking to him or say anything, and I didn't speak to him or say to him. And the reason I didn't speak to him or say anything to him is because I worried that people would judge me because to speak to him, I might have to stand too close to him, which is a ridiculous thing to think. So I suppose what I'm telling my, about my story is that actually within this kind of social distancing, it actually made me less ethical, not more ethical. I suppose you might say it might make me, in the way that you're thinking about it, it might make me think about my indifference to others as I walk through the city, generally. You know, as I, as I walk through my city to catch the train, it's just uh, faceless people. I walk past them. I'm completely indifferent to them. So this event might make me or anyone else think about those relations of anonymity. I was just going to add to that, though. It's kind of ironic about Levinas and cities that, you know, the guy lived in the city all his life. He's the most city person you could imagine. So I don't know why he had such a downer on cities. It does seem a bit <laughs> remarkable. Uh, and also uh, thinking about some of the things he says about Heidegger, you know, about Heidegger's paganism, his obsession with nature and blood and all that kind of stuff. You know, you'd think that there, there would be a much more... Uh, in Levinas, a much more positive uh, relation towards cities. Because cities do allow these kind of anonymous relations, but they also, from a more Spinozist kind of sense, they allow for more encounters, more positive encounters. Somebody once said that the best ex exemplification of Levinas's utopian ethics is the fact that he never even himself lived close to them. Yeah, that is true. That was great. Thank you very much. I can tell it was a great conversation because that hour went really quickly. <laughs>